welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bass. And thank you for listening. Yes. David. I got ahead of myself. Uh, yeah. I responded before you said anything. Sorry. I like to change up my cadence if I can. We're on um, on autopilot because we've been doing this show so long. We've been doing this show so long, by the way. Okay. So, last week we talked about Shakespeare adaptations. Yep. Only to be pointed out by... Uh, well, it was pointed out to us that we did that episode nine years ago. Right. Now, um, I will say, I looked up, I went to battleshippretension.com, and I looked up Shakespeare. Yeah, I just there. typed in Shakespeare, and it's not there. And then episode 148 or whatever it is, 184, right. isn't might, there. I'm not sure what why it's missing from the website. I think probably when we transferred from one to the other, yeah. it didn't make the transition, but yeah, so. But let me tell you what. Uh, what, what, what happened, what, what I did is I went back and I listened to that episode. Okay. Um, I listened to us nine years ago. Talk, made a lot of this. We did repeat ourselves a lot. Oh, I don't doubt but it. But also, like, I noticed weird things like opinions changed or like last week when Franco Zeffirelli's, was it Franco Zeffirelli? Zeffirelli's Romeo yeah. and Juliet came up. I mentioned that I'd seen it once when I was younger. I went back and listened to the 2010 episode and I said on that episode, I've seen it a bunch of times. Well, maybe know. as you get older, you just kind of yeah, so put now, all of them together remember the into one, one ultra time. Yeah, but I actually saw it multiple times. Yeah. Um, I'm also reminded I talked at length about Kiss Me Kate back in 2010. Oh, okay. I didn't even mention it last week. Yeah. Not I guess that it's it worth mentioning. It's not I very guess good. it didn't stick with you. Yeah. yeah, it's not very good. Uh, but I'm also remembering that I didn't. I I hadn't seen this in 2010 and the one movie that I meant to mention last week that I didn't was the um, stop motion Midsummer Night's Dream uh, made by oh. Yuri Yuri Trinka mm. is that his name yeah. uh, I, <laughs> I'm looking to our guest who knows more about movies than we do yeah. uh, I, I think I got it right um, so anyway uh, that happened yeah and uh, then obviously because of the position you're in now of having listened to us cover it essentially better i guess uh nine no, years ago better this time you think so yeah okay yeah you think we're smarter and wiser and all that yeah and we've seen more movies that's true okay fair enough um but anyway that's the one i want to talk about i do want to talk about whether or not uh marvel movies are cinema but uh we'll <laughs> bring our guest in on that um so let me tell you before we get to the guest let me tell you about tweakedaudio.com tweakedaudio.com is where you go for for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors people would great. be able to hear that hitch just then yeah really like crystal clear yeah yeah they come in a variety of stylish styles colorful colors they look great they sound great Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives what I listen to uh, today is listening to there's a new um uh, album by Baby Metal coming out. Do you know Baby Metal? I know. I know. Of course you know about Baby Metal. Everyone <laughs> yeah. knows about Baby Metal. No, um, you don't, do you? No, of course no. not. Uh, Baby Metal is a fun uh, sort of uh, like J-pop metal mm-hmm. hybrid, um, but it's a lot of fun, fun music. Their new album is supposed to be very good, so listen to a song or two off of that. I've been, I've been listening to a lot of Janis Joplin, oddly enough. I don't know, I don't know why that's where on. that... Well, just, because it's... Why now? I don't know. I just suddenly felt the urge, and suddenly I've just been listening to... You got the spirit of, Jan- of 69 in you, I guess. Right? I guess so. Nice. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the Baby Metal sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Um, they're available uh, for a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay. 
Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes. We have a fun episode uh, to get to, um, inspired by, well, well, I guess you'll talk about what it was. It was your idea. So mm-hmm. why don't you first introduce our guest? Okay. And then we'll get into the episode. Okay, so guest first and then topic. Yes. Okay. Yes, because I have other things I want to talk to our guest about. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. Uh, it's an exciting time then. I think about that all the time, that, that line. line from Barton Fink. Um, anyway, uh, so you can laugh on Mike. It's perfectly fine. Uh, the co- is- sorry, uh, a friend of mine the other day, uh, we were at a, a bar and I said something and he went, that's interesting. That's fucking interesting. <laughs> uh, from the big, the big Lebowski, of course. Anyway, there's such a there's such, and I, I don't mean this in a negative way. There's such like an affectation to the Coens sometimes. Mm-hmm. You yeah. forget just how fucking quotable their lines yeah, are yeah. in everyday conversation. Yeah, oh, it's wonderful. Lordy, yes, we got to beat that competition. <laughs> That's another one I think of. Uh, all right, introduce our guest. Sorry. Like the other day, someone was shooting at me, and I was covered in pans. And I, what? And thank God they gave me something to say of course and which is of course is damn boys <laughs> exactly um okay so uh yeah it's been uh, a little while since uh, our guest was uh, was on the show and we've been looking for opportunities to have him back and uh somehow this topic seemed just right it is you know him we knew him first now we know him as like one of the best friends of the show but uh-huh. we knew him first as the movie geek on beat the geeks it's mark hoik Thank you. All right. It's, it occurred to me, it's like, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce the last name. I didn't know he was Mark. Twitter handle is for, right? Oh, yeah. is that what? Well, yeah. as you know, I only use Twitter these days to look at cute animals. Good. Good for you. <laughs> no good. offense, Mark. <laughs> you are adorable. <laughs> but so do you, does that mean you don't know about the... Uh Martin Scorsese said Marvel movies. Oh, I know cinema. about okay. that. Yes. <laughs> so sorry, Mark. How have you been? And our Marvel movies cinema. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think they have the potential to be so, but they have not reached it yet. Oh, huh. all right. I, my point of view, I mean, we did a whole episode about what is a movie yeah. to me. A certain, at a certain point, it's not, it, it's not a, a question like to me a Marvel movie is cinema because it fits a certain it fits like you know like uh, the if you're doing taking the test to see if you have a drinking problem if you have to meet six out of ten criteria or whatever like Marvel movies meet enough of them that they're cinema it doesn't mean they're good <laughs> it's an interesting analogy watch out um, why does Siri keep doing this it doesn't do it for me no I know but it just did it shut up um uh <laughs> During our commentaries available now at pretension dot com. That's right. I don't know why my Siri is like eavesdropping all the time. Uh, anyway, now I've lost track. So uh, my my point of view is Martin Scorsese. I I agree with him in yeah. that I don't like most of the movies or don't care that much about sure. them. But at a certain point, something just if a, a movie just is cinema. I'm suspecting that because. Martin Scorsese is hard is hardly a snob, and you know uh-huh. he's through all the decades he has always championed a lot of 
works that other people would have considered low culture. He was right. one of the first people to be talking up David Cronenberg. He was one of the people to actively talk up classic 50s uh, sci-fi uh, his amazing stories episode is a direct homage to hammer uh, he used freddie francis as a cinematographer so he, i don't think he's got any beef with what we would consider the low culture of marvel movies i think maybe it's more of the fact of uh, he, he when he expounded at length talking about how you know they're like theme park rides yeah. that that there, that there's not much opportunity. That there's not much opportunity for it to deliver anything other than what is, is directly intended. That that, that you you ha- that because initially in the first batch of Marvel movies you had certain personalities doing them and they were showing through that mm-hmm. when Branna did the first Thor yeah, he yeah. was perfect for that because he was able to add a solemn majesty to Asgard and then put Thor on Earth and make him look ridiculous because he's got that background of British Shakespeare and British comedy, you know, mm-hmm. from being married to Emma Thompson and all of the you know, the comedians that she was hanging out with. So he understood that balance. Uh, or having somebody like Joe Johnston Absolutely. do Captain America because he understood nostalgia and the mindset of the 40s, you know, by making the Rocketeer. I do remember at the time when they would announce, like, because there was really not much precedent, there was just Jon Favreau making these things, and I guess Lou Leterrier, but, like, the idea that when they would announce, oh, so-and-so is directing this, I remember at the time, like, when I heard Joe Johnson do Captain America, I was like, that is perfect. Mm -hmm. And then when they said, Joss Whedon is going to do the Avengers, I was like, that is also perfect. I will say, you get to phase three, Three and I didn't have that reaction. It's like, oh, okay. it's so and so. As much as I enjoy, as but much as I like Peyton so Reed and so stuff, it's, but it's, it's like, oh, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck are doing a Marvel movie. It's is, it, is this Marvel movie going to be like half Nelson? No, it's right. going to be like every other Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I think they 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 couldn't bring. You know, they certainly didn't bring any of the aspects that they brought to Sugar or Half Nelson (laughs) to Captain Marvel. But I think they did bring an understanding of what Captain Marvel represents to an underserved demographic of the audience, namely young girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I I mean, obviously not being Uh, a young girl, I can't. To me, it seemed... It seemed superficially addressing that, but again, I'm oh, not a young girl. I don't know sure. the, the feeling. Yeah, but uh, to me, the, Wonder Woman was a much better <laughs> version of that. Well, I, I think also, yeah. To I think that the film, you know, in its own look, you, you you can't do it with the same gravitas as Half Nelson, but the understanding of being of spending most of your life being taught something and finding out you've been misled and having to reevaluate everything and reassert yourself and you know, your your self-worth and you know kind of coming to terms with all of the bad stuff you've done and that's where that is where I think maybe 
Fleck and Bowden were able to come in because she's when she's finally making peace with the scrolls, she's recognizing, oh, damn it, I have killed you know hundreds of these people, yeah. you know, and I'm you know, and I and for on on a lie, and the scroll, you know, her their compatriots saying, look. We were in on. We did the same thing too. Let's just try and focus on each other, and yeah. you know we'll you know we'll get past this to do something better. And that is you know again not doesn't have as much heft as Ryan Gosling's heroin addiction and Half Nelson, <laughs> but their instincts. Okay, you know it sounds like you like Captain Marvel that. more than I did. I did. But, yeah. You know, I, I will say in in the idea. So uh, I was recently uh, at the Hollywood Divine Film Festival, which is a Christian film festival not in, in Pennsylvania. Hollywood. Yeah, not in not Hollywood. In Hollywood. Um, very divine, though. A lot of you know over dra- overweight cross dressers. There was <laughs> people kind of got their their wires crossed uh, there. But um, Wait, but was Adam Divine from uh, Workaholics? There? Of course he was. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, and, uh, a, a lot of Medea uh, cosplay. Absolutely. Oh, that's and that's where they're like, finally, we've we've got some common ground here. Um, anyway. Uh, it was great. It was. It's Sorry, only. I should say Adam Devine from Jexy. There we go. Yes, thank you. Um, there, it's only their second year, so there wasn't a very high attendance. But I really like the festival. They're just like really open to like larger conversations about cinema. I was on some panels, and I gave a talk about superhero movies, and I was able to address the Martin Scorsese thing because it happened like the day before. So I was like really excited. Um, and th- to me, it's just like I guess it's that word cinema that is the that is the the issue because I think he has a definition of cinema as opposed to movies. But as far as I'm concerned, like even the less effective. Marvel movies, the or or the ones that are just sort of a foregone conclusion as far as what they're going to be tonally. It's like the director is still making artistic decisions to try to achieve a certain emotional response in the audience, and that's what movies are. That's I yeah. think what cinema is. And as far as I, the I idea of what was that? I feel the same way that it just is. I don't. No. I probably feel the same way as as Martin Scorsese does about a lot of them, but I just think that sure, sure. I, I think I think uh, you. Know, the question of whether Marvel films or cinema is something that we can't decide on that now. History has to bear that out. Like, I would like, I think if I was sitting down with Scorsese, I think we would agree that Superman is cinema, the first Richard Donner Superman, because it is endured and it zeroed in on you know, the concept of, of innocence and of nostalgia or that uh, you know Tim Burton's Batman is cinema because it took all of these kind of cultish elements of of uh, directors like Bava or Fritz Lang and put them into a mass entertainment where you know uh, an average director wouldn't have thought of doing that and that uh, the Dark Knight clearly is cinema because it is taking you know a pulp story but in infu- you know infusing it with both the larger than life aspects of a graphic novel but with uh, the the dead seriousness of you know a, a good crime drama mm-hmm. so i think maybe i would say something like black panther has the chance you know if it if it endures 
and stands out above the other Marvel films like further down the road. Like I could see that because people talk about that one way more than they talk about, you know, Thor, the dark world. Yeah, you know, yeah. that, or Well, that's that, for sure. Yes. Yeah, that, you know, that <laughs> one, you know, struck a nerve. And that I think has the chance to you know, transcend origin and stand above you know, the, the the assembly line. If only there were a filmmaker out there that wanted to make a superhero-inspired film, but really wanted it to be serious, man. <laughs> if only there were someone like You're getting that. ahead of us here. I know, I know. I'm looking to turn to dress. Okay, sorry. One, a real quick... Uh, the Martin Scorsese thing that I wanted a uh, story from this podcast because you you mentioned uh, that he is a fan of you know lower brow cinema and Pat Healy told the story in this podcast that he I, I think he was auditioning for vinyl or something that Martin Scorsese produced and he wasn't there mm-hmm. but the um, casting director said to Pat Healy like oh Marty wanted me to let you know that he loves the innkeepers he's seen it so many times <laughs> so apparently Martin Scorsese loves Ty West that's great the innkeepers that's a fun thing uh, to hear oh yeah, yeah that's great and, um, uh, uh, he didn't get he, him the job but whatever. Uh, well uh, Healy is such a great fellow um, I did not you know he had to remind me of the fact that he had been a contestant on beat the geeks oh oh I didn't know that I knew that uh the one of the the things that is only coming to light now is that and I'm sure this is true for a lot of game shows, but that a lot of the contestants are, were basically actors whose agents were putting them on there right. just okay. to have exposure and have something for the real. Because I do know at least twice on Beat the Geeks, someone was playing a character. Mm-hmm. Like like someone was on you know there, and we just looked at ourselves like, Oh no! Th- this guy is—he's playing a character. He—he's doing something for his real. I wish—I wish one of them had been Goble, but that's just how he is. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, uh, interestingly, I just—I got one of the other guys who had been on Beat the Geeks as a contestant, uh, Eric Edelstein. Oh yeah. From, oh, yeah. Uh, Green Room and Twin Peaks. I, he hooked me up last week with uh, this great event. He staged a 90th birthday party for Don Murray over at Dynasty Typewriter downtown. And it was this great event. He had uh, Richard Chamberlain and Michelle Lee and uh, uh, Kimmy Robertson sung and there were video testimonials from David Lynch and Treat Williams and I got to talk for a few minutes about the fact that uh, when I was doing my uh, programming series at uh, the Bev in 2014, I Pat Healy was my first guest for my first event. But the last event that I did at the Bev was a double feature of Deadly Hero, which Don Murray stars in, and MacGruber. <laughs> and Don <laughs> appeared, and he did a great Q&A. But at that Q&A in 2014 was Josh Fadum. Oh, sure. And of course. And years later, Don and Josh play co-workers on Twin Peaks. <laughs> so I like to feel I karmically yeah. got the ball rolling on making that happen. Well, In fact, maybe they brought the whole show back solely for that to happen. So yeah. thank you. Well, you I'm mentioned um, that. Sorry, I keep cycling through topics. There's another thing I want to mention yes. before we get to the topic. You mentioned the New Beverly 
Uh, I, last thing I saw there was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which you're in. That's yes. right. Um, tour de force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, yes, to the listeners who don't know. Yes, uh, for the listeners, uh, you know, for you know, because I've I've dined out on this story most of the <laughs> summer, so I uh, I feel like the shelf life is about to expire okay. on it, uh, but. Uh, uh, my lovely knuckles are in the first reel of the movie that when uh, Pacino is talking about, you know, watching Rick Dalton's movies in his screening room, there's cutaways of a hand pulling a reel of film out and threading up a projector. Those are my hands. And the way it came about was I was doing a private projection for someone who had a screening room and it was deemed to look period enough that it would be appropriate to use in the film. And so initially I was just going to physically run the footage because even in those brief shots, they're looking at actual film footage from actual movies. But they're not not this fake stuff that he shot. You're just showing like no, no. This is real footage, and on on one on a couple of occasions, he tries to match what he shot to that. Like uh, the fourteen fists of McCluskey, uh-huh. uh, the the brief snippet that we see in Pacino's screening room right. is actually a Rod Taylor. Adam West uh, World War II drama called Partisan, uh, also known as Hell River. Uh, never, I don't think it got a theatrical release in America, but it did play the CBS late movie. Huh. So I'm running a clip of Hell River, and, and I guess the uh, Rick Dalton is supposed to be you know in the movie replacing some other character. Right. I don't know how good of a job they did matching that footage to what we saw. And then, like, the, the Western scene that is supposed to be Tanner, where you're seeing, like, these credits on screen, that's from uh, a mid-'70s Western called Against a Crooked Sky with Richard Boone. Which, um, so, so I'm physically running footage from those movies. But there's supposed to be another actor playing a projectionist in this sequence, uh-huh. and we don't see his face. Um, but if you like, if you see the original trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's a cutaway of you know Pacino walking into the screening room, and there's like an over the shoulder of the actor who's playing the projectionist and he's like saying, Oh, roll him, Charlie. And, uh-huh. and so that was the projectionist. But during a break in filming, uh, Quentin said, no, nah, I don't like his hands. They're, they're too beefy. And I was actually going to, I was going to, I was going to make a joke that like, Oh, his knuckles are disgusting. But actually that was apparently true. <laughs> oh, not well, it's just, he's, and you know, I asked, are you sure my hands are kind of soft and ladylike? <laughs> and, uh, and uh, someone else on the set uh, said, well, you've got Persian housewife hands. So, <laughs> so we didn't shoot them then. It was like two months later. Oh, they Because wow. the screen, the, the booth itself was just too small. And, mm-hmm. you know, they had a set, you know, they could only do so much during the time they were in that booth. So a couple months later, they recreated the booth at Raleigh Studios. And I went in and did the inserts. Man, oh man! Wow! It's the thing that uh, my big takeaway from that, 
and though I, I I'm old enough I should know this, but I just think like, man, movies are a lot of work. That's 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 almost too much work. I think <laughs> oh, to make the movie <laughs> to make a movie. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Uh, I'm gonna Did you like the finished product? Ex- oh, uh, I love it. Okay, um, I, I've watched it two times uh, completely and stolen glimpses of sections of it, like when I've been at the multiplex and you know don't want to leave and nobody's paying attention. Can't blame you. Um, you know, I like. Uh, yeah, p- people, please don't steal movies. But you know. <laughs> Like, but sometimes Such an if insincere it, preface. Well, no, I was a theater manager for 14 years, right. so uh, it was my job to bust people like this. But at the same time, you, know, I also understand you know priorities. Like it's it's if it's an 18 screen complex, don't be a dick about it. But. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. if you, you know, like, they're probably they're probably as long as you don't give them grief, and they're prob they'll probably look the other way and buy concession. At least make it worth sure. their while, sure. which is what I did. You know, I would you know go buy another candy bar and get a refill on my soda. Also, I feel like a good rule of thumb for moral reasons, just for uh, just personal comfort reasons, maybe don't the second, you know, you pay, you buy a ticket to see a movie and you stay and you go to a second movie. We've all done it. Um, I've never done that. But maybe that second movie, if it's opening weekend, don't do an opening weekend movie because don't do a movie with it. It's a good chance that it's sold out. Oh, sure. You know what I mean? Because well, that, that well, causes Well, problems. I mean, well, that's in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, yeah. well, no, it's like, you know, never see, sit at an exalted place because someone will say, oh, you need to make room for this person. You know, uh-huh. what? Because you know, <laughs> I, 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 tried, I tried to do that once. So, you know, I you know, snuck and sure enough, I was in you know, a seat that someone had already bought and, you know, because right. I, I thought, oh, it's the front row. Nobody's going to want one of these crappy seats. No, somebody did. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm trying to uh, uh, reverse engineer a segue here. You mentioned a while ago, you mentioned Tim Burton's Batman. Yes. Which stars Michael Keaton, mm-hmm. an actor who Batman fans were not happy about the casting of because they were like... Well, thankfully, that was the last time that would happen. <laughs> they were like, this guy's a, this guy's a comedian. Mr. Mom. Uh, Mr. Mom, and he actually started as a stand-up, and then he's like known for comedies and, uh, and all that. Uh, and so we're going to talk about a bunch of situations like that today. We're going to talk about movies, or actors who... Or directors, in some cases. Uh, oh, see, I didn't do any directors' mm. uh, research. But uh, people who started in comedy were known for comedy and made that, that transition. Yeah, and the... You mentioned Batman. The reason that this came about uh, was because of uh, Todd Phillips' Joker. Um, I was on Facebook, and uh, Ben Sampson, who's been uh, on this show before and uh, was one of my instructors at UCLA, he uh, he posted about uh, about Joker that he didn't really care for it, and, and. he just thought it wasn't very incisive and all that. And then I responded that I responded sort of with Vi- with Adam McKay's vice in mind that like, I just wonder from a directorial standpoint standpoint, like directors who start maybe in a very specific type of, for lack of a better term, silly comedy when they suddenly decide they want to get more serious. Um, I found myself wondering 
do they ever go quite as deep as the material requires or do they go and this is not to disparage comedy or are their roots in comedy which is to find the funny of something or at least find the punch of something and they just focus on that and wind up neglecting what could be underneath i didn't think about directors um, oh um and well i definitely but i definitely listed a lot more actors um, well um, i mean you know, woody allen is kind of well, I mean, the, yeah yeah the, you know you've got you'd have him uh, mckay phillips but you, you could also i mean ron howard was kind of a, at, at the very least a light director mm-hmm. before he you know he's and he's done some very serious films mm-hmm. um that you know that they're I mean, I think I think over the course of conversation, you know, my mind will come up with a few more. But, sure. you know, but they're, they're, they are to be found. They're they're not they're they're obviously more actors who have segued from comedy to drama than there are directors or or even writers for that matter. But, you know, they're they're all through or look at Howard Hawks. Uh, I mean, sure. that man could do anything. That's right. a good point. Yeah, when you got these these journeyman directors like, like that, they really could. And I was I was sort of doing research, and and admittedly, uh, the movie has sparked other people to have this conversation. Um, and somebody and somebody mentioned um, Preston Sturgis, mm-hmm. and it's like. But I feel like he never fully transitioned into hard-hitting drama or serious stuff. He kept the comedy with him. And when he was doing, like, quote-unquote, pure comedy, there was still pathos in there as well. So I don't think, for him, it was like a night and day move from one thing to the next situation, as opposed to well, he, he Todd made, Phillips. He you made know. one attempt at doing a full-on serious film, which was the great moment about mm-hmm. the discovery of anesthesia. And... It, and it was ultimately, you know, taken away from him. And, you know, they didn't try to turn it into a comedy, but they definitely tinkered with it hmm. so badly that it total that it totally ruined what he was going for in the storytelling. You know, that I, you know, that if there you know, everyone talks about oh, finding you know Wells's original cut of Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, you know, after that, the next great miracle would be finding you know the original cut of the Great Moment. Well, uh, that reminds me of a movie I hadn't thought of because I wasn't thinking of directors, but a movie that uh, exists. But as far as I know, no one here at this table has seen The Day the Clown Cried. I was going to mention that. Yes, but, uh, I get the uh, feeling you've seen it. Well. <laughs> In the immortal words of Regina George, stop trying to make the day the clown cried happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> that's, what, that's exactly what she says in that yeah, movie. Yeah. <laughs> they they uh, dubbed over, though. Yeah. You can tell. Uh, uh, so I don't know if you have. I don't know if that means you've seen it or not. No, nobody okay. has seen it. Harry Shearer is lying. Okay. Oh, OK. Um, I have had contacts with uh, Jerry Lewis's archivist. Uh, who was, you know, taking care of almost every scrap of media that he owned. And he said there is no bloody way Harry Shearer saw any kind of assembly of the movie because, oh, there's probably certain there. If you go on YouTube, obviously, there are like snatches from documentaries that were shot while he was shooting. Uh, maybe there's like some. You know, you know, a few scene assemblies that got done, but that it was never put into a cohesive finished version. Hmm. And what everyone keeps 
what everyone keeps ignoring and it drives me up a bloody tree (laughs) is that the reason why we are never going to see this movie is because when when Jerry started shooting it, his producer had only gotten a limited option on the story because it was an existing story Hmm. and he like. Like, the guy put money down, but he never closed the deal. He's like, you know, here's an advance, but, you know, he never, like, got it in writing. Okay, we have this. But he just told Jerry to start shooting. And while Jerry was... Weird Al in Gangster's Paradise. And and while... (laughs) So, and eventually, you know, the production... You know, runs out of money because this producer was also pretty unscrupulous. And, but then the writer, the original writer, gets a whiff of what you know Jerry is do, you know take, making all of these wholesale changes to the you know the source material, and he doesn't like it, and he's like, well, you know what, I'm not going to sign off on this, mm. you know, so you know you're you're screwed unless and. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think the writer is alive or or the estate for that matter. But you know, he can donate it to the, he can donate his footage to the Library of Congress. Maybe you know, with that ten year death codicil, then maybe like a few historians will be able to look at it. But unless you get the the intellectual property rights to it, you cannot do a damn thing with that movie. Hmm. That I mean. People, you know, so people need to shut the fuck up <laughs> about the day the clown cried, because so, that's so that's like, I mean, that's the equivalent of if you know someone decided to go and you know make a Spider-Man movie without getting the rights from Marvel, right? And like, oh, I'm a persecuted artist. No, uh, you went and spent your own money on something that you didn't have the rights to. Well, and it's interesting you bring up uh, Ambersons as well, because there years ago, some friends and I were talking about like all the lost things over the years. Um, and someone said like, Oh, I'm still holding out hope that there's this other cut somewhere in a, in a, in a, in a can somewhere. And I said like, this is different than than Metropolis. It's one thing when there's like random cuts all over the place and it's just lost to time. It's very different when somebody is willfully trying to kill something, which is what the studio was doing with Ambersons. It's not as though uh, it's not as though there was this fabled other cut that maybe got squirreled away somewhere. Like it was just taken from him completely. And they with full malevolence uh, destroyed it. So like, it's very, it's a very different situation. Like here you're talking about like there are legal, there are legal issues. There are people who are willfully trying to keep this down. And so, yeah, I mean, of course you hear that you I've heard about Harry Shearer and all that. uh, But I never heard much beyond the, this rumor, like again, that, that speaking like in hushed tones about, oh, you know who has it is Harry Shearer. Yeah, well, yeah, that you know, Lewis liked to perpetuate the myth that it, he was single handedly responsible for suppressing it. You know, he, you know, to his death, he said, "Oh yeah, I decided not to do it because it was no good. I screwed up." And but you know, the fact of the matter is, he got clowned by his producer, and he doesn't <laughs> want to admit that. Somebody got the better of him. Although, he, do you think he 
convinced Harry Shearer to start that rumor then? Do you think it's an insight? Yeah. No, I think... <laughs> Did he bequeath think, it to him in his I will? Th- I, I don't know. It was written for Spy Magazine. I'm thinking maybe he... I maybe he wrote it as a like a semi satirical goof, mm-hmm. you know. Like, I mean, Spy Magazine had its moments, but I personally <laughs> always found it kind of insufferably smug. Uh-huh. So it sounds like exactly the kind the the kind of thing that you know somebody like Harry would do. Like again, f- I'm a fan of Harry Shearer, but sometimes he is so far up his own ass it's unbearable. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen you, interviews with him. Have you ever tried to listen to an episode of the show? <laughs> There's a reason why it's not on KCRW anymore. <laughs> I do love the idea of someone with a straight face saying like spy magazine was insufferably smug. Uh, it just, uh, it's not a thing I hear very much anymore. Um, and you said with, so with total sincerity, which I admire. Um, <clears throat> but I will say, Wait, uh, has Harry Shearer ever done a dramatic role? I'm sure. Right. I think he has. I'm sure he has. I mean, it's, <sighs> I can think of dramatic things he's been in, but he's not necessarily doing like in the Truman show, you know, that's a dramatic film, but he's not the dramatic push of it. Yeah. You know, that, you know, that like he's being, he's not trying to be funny, but he is not playing a character of any yeah. major heft yeah. that he's not oh, playing I'm the playing, Ed Harris character. Yeah. I, he, you know, he's playing an announcer. Well, you know, he does voiceovers. Yeah. So, that would be the kind of thing that he should do. So looking at, to briefly touch on like directors and then we can move on. Cause I don't have a very long list here and, uh, and I have a much longer list of actors. So, uh, by the time this comes out, we will have talked about Joker on the movie journal. Oh. Um, what? I said, Oh, okay. Exciting. Oh yeah. Um, and I know that you were not necessarily a fan of it. Um, I enjoy, I, I only ever saw the first hangover. I saw due date, which I kind of enjoyed. I'm one of the only people who really enjoyed due date. I thought when, they had some nice chemistry. The well, two of them. I th- well, when, when it came out, I wrote an essay for my blog back when I was updating that more often. And I hadn't been burned by the fact that nobody was reading it. <laughs> it, it, it look, it's not that I write for, for, you know, in order to get, you know, cookies from people. But at a certain point, I'm thinking, OK, am I going to knock myself out to do what is the equivalent of, uh, you know, someone else writing fanfic for or <laughs> like if I'm going to write something, let's write something that people are actually interested in. Yes. But I wrote an essay about Iron Man 2 and Due Date and how. They kind of tie together through looking through the lens of Robert Downey Jr. becoming a father again, because mm-hmm. at that time he, you know, he had he was on a career upswing. He had gotten sober and stayed so for a long time. And even though he had a child from a previous marriage who was now almost an adult, he was embarking on fatherhood again and probably asking a lot of questions of himself of, well, you know, I've had this hard life and I've made all these mistakes. Am I going to be up to the task? And then and a I, few years later, like the judge was a movie that it was like a passion project for him, which is like, like mm-hmm. a relationship between a father and son. Yeah. And that due date, what I think a lot of people did not grasp about the film 
is that it wasn't supposed to be a rehash of you know planes trains and automobiles about mm-hmm. oh warning to get along with a guy who isn't like you the theme of due date is how to <clears throat> deal with basically the worst case scenario of a child <laughs> that, you know, that, yeah. <laughs> that basically you know he's about to become a father and you know zach galifianakis is doing all of this really trying stuff and and it's clearly trying you know, downy's patience but what he but what gradually at least when i was watching it i thought it was so blatantly obvious to me but nobody else seems to pick up on it is that well these are the these are the big th- fears you have to worry about what if you know you know um i remember reading about uh uh foster children and adopted children who have you know, come with uh, emotional damage who start really lashing out, you know, because they're thinking, well, it's all going to fall apart anyway, so why don't I speed up the process? You I, know, will, I will if do I it do, on my own terms. Or yes. if I, you know, if I do this, will you still love me? If I do this horrible thing, will you still love me? And, and I feel like due date was exploring you know, in a comedic extreme, you know, you know what uh, Downey's capacity to handle uh, catastrophe would be, because in order for him to be a really good father, that's what he has to learn. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. It's been a while since I've seen the film, but I absolutely see that. Like it, this, quite literally, a man child mm-hmm. is is trying his patience. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I remember liking Due Date quite a bit. Um, I didn't see Hangover two or three, but clearly, uh, like Todd Phillips, it, it, when I heard about Joker, my first thought was like, "All right, Joaquin Phoenix, you have my attention. That has my attention." But then when I heard it was Todd Phillips, I'm like, "You are losing my attention now because I just don't." And this is probably wrong of me because I have such a high opinion of of comedy as an emotional force but my first thought was like i don't trust him to fully realize the potential of this material it's like i feel like he is going to have to work hard to earn that joaquin phoenix performance which i don't think he ever does but it just it feels like it's just trying so hard to be taken seriously not merely hard to be serious but hard to be taken seriously as well and i feel like that's something that i like hey why so serious? Why don't you get out of here, Dick? <laughs> uh, and I feel like that's actually something that I think about, not merely with directors who are trying who go from comedy to, to drama, but also actors. That I sometimes I'll see like a comedic actor, like okay, I need it's time to be taken seriously, and it feels like they're laying it on kind of thick. Yeah. Um, One of the first ones I thought of uh, is, um, and this is TV, not movies. Is it Daryl Hammond? It, when Daryl Hammond was on Damages in season two, which I didn't see, but I remember you mentioning it, so it's yeah, on it my list. It just seems like he's like it's like he has a voice in his brain going, "Don't be funny, don't be funny, don't be funny," and he's so. He's so dour uh, and so serious, and that, that I didn't think it was a very good uh, uh, performance. But it was one of the first ones I, that I that I thought of. And it's weird because I feel like so often people who go from comedy to drama end up. And I don't know why we continue to be surprised, but end up being like, "Oh wow, that person's yeah. like Jonah Hill. Like wow, that person's really good." Yeah. Um, 
Uh, I'm also yet, for some reason my mind first goes to the one I didn't like. I also I'm also impressed when somebody who I think of as a dramatic actor can do comedy particularly well, um, like a frankly like a DiCaprio who could also who could be very charming and light in stuff like Catch Me If You Can. But then you see Wolf of Wall Street and you're thinking like whoa whoa what is what is going on here? This is amazing. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think he's marvelous. Mm-hmm. And Brad Pitt's um, even funnier than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. I think. Well. Um, you know the you know the cliche is that you know every you know every comedian wants to do Hamlet, but I think what it should be, the, what the full thing should be is that every comedian wants to do Hamlet, every Shakespearean actor wants to grab a cardboard cutlass and play pirates because uh-huh. <laughs> if because sometimes you will never see a more joyous performance than a generally serious actor just you know cutting loose uh, like it's it's the, why Kenneth Brown is so much fun in uh, murder on the Orient Express like he's mm-hmm. clearly enjoying himself or, so or Harry Potter too or Harry Potter yeah, absolutely well I'm thinking like I'm thinking about during the production of uh, from dusk till dawn mm-hmm. uh, Harvey Keitel's character was initially just supposed to be killed off mm. and you know during the shooting he went to Rodriguez and says I want to be a vampire <laughs> and like well, okay yeah, we'll we'll rig up the main up and yeah. that or you De Niro in Machete is hilarious and people forget that De, uh, De Niro started out as a comic actor he had done you know the you know, Brian De Palma's uh, wedding party greetings and hi mom uh, he he took Al Pacino's role in the gang that couldn't shoot straight when Pacino you know had got the offer to do the Godfather so you know, De Niro had you know already had comedy chops in his background, and then he just got stuck in you know serious land for over yeah. a decade or, or plus, and then finally started being considered for comedy again, and it became a big deal. And then he didn't he didn't make the best comedies for a stretch after that, and now you know he's it. I don't know if he's. He, I don't think he's as blatant as Brando in terms of uh, phoning stuff in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but well, you mentioned Brando. I was thinking of somebody. Sorry, we're, we've gotten into the, the the sister episode, which is when serious actors do comedy or at least something like that. Yeah. But like Gene Hackman in Superman is having the time of his life, yeah. obviously. Um, but yeah, so uh, just to briefly get back to Joker, and then mm-hmm. we can move on because God knows there's plenty of other conversations being had about sure. it. I know that you didn't particularly care for, but like in the context of this conversation, like a comedic director making this type of movie, how did that strike you? Well, Joker, tech, you know, technical on all technical aspects, you know, the, the look, the 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 editing, the pacing, you know, the staging, mm-hmm. you know that. On all of that, it is. It's prob. It, it may be the best movie that Phillips has ever done from that aspect. You mm-hmm. know that that I I love the first Hangover. I made the mistake of seeing the second Hangover, which was such an exact carbon copy of every bullet point of the first hangover i'm now wondering if maybe it was an intentional troll on the audience because <laughs> that's the only 
thing I can think of to justify and it. That is something that Todd Phillips. I, mean, this, I, I could almost see him doing that. I, I mean, remember him. This is a guy who's career really started with a documentary about gg allen yeah like and, and, I, know, I, I, that's and honestly, as i as i quipped on twitter apparently the only thing he's learned from gg allen is that there's a demographic who will watch him uh, throw shit on the wall and <laughs> <laughs> but that, i mean what you just described is that kind of my pet theory about the hangover part two and something that i kind of like about it that uh it is steering into the fact that it is the exact same plot but he's also like doing things like spattering pig blood all over Ed Helms's face or like shooting a monkey or like all the like he's intentionally said like let's the same movie but more upsetting and I I feel like he's got that provocateur sort of it's like Home Alone 2 I got it (laughs) I caught a snatch of an interview he did with Elvis Mitchell where so I know that he's an intelligent individual I you know I, I I mean I don't like his movie and he's being an absolute prat in interviews right now but I can't write him off I, you know that that he acknowledges that you know the hangover you, that that these are not supposed to be admirable protagonists that these are supposed to, and that over the course of the three movies he made he wanted to just make them more awful to just kind of you know put the audience on edge about like, you know, should we really be mm-hmm. rooting for these terrible people? But you know, that after a while, you know, once that experiment is over, what else have you got? Yeah. That, that there, there needs to, there, that, you know, there need you need to bring more to the table than just that. That okay, you 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 pulled you pulled a good you pulled a fast one. What else can you do? I do think there's a couple things in it that struck me uh, that I did talk about in the movie journal, so I won't mention it here. But there's a couple things I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Not sure if it's intentional, but it's interesting. Uh, but yeah, I definitely found the film to be a little shallow um, and this speaks to something I don't know if you enjoyed the movie Vice we did not care for it partially because we found it to be not nearly as curious as I feel like it should have been and that one actually is trying to be more of an overt comedy mm-hmm. so some of that's a little bit forgivable but again like he's making comedy out of and there's an anger an obvious anger and I'd say a justified anger underneath it but then after a certain point it's like yes but I Everything you're doing here is something I've seen before in some way, shape, or form. What, what are you going to do now? What are you doing? Once we get over the novelty of what you're doing, what else is there? And I feel like with device, with Vice, I think there's, there's nothing. Well, I'll, I'll cover cover both of those. Like to, 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 to wrap on Joker, um, I think I, I didn't see War Dogs, so I can't oh, vouch I. for I the what whatever he he tried with that. But the the allusions to other directors in Joker are are so blatant as to just be like how how can you you're, it's it's one thing to you know, use a technique from a better known person but it's just cribbing so wholesale from Scorsese from Lumet from Fincher from uh, you know, uh, 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 other directors, 
and not doing anything different with it. Whereas right. something like Hustlers, you know, Hustlers is a Scorsese steal, but it does it in a fresh manner and with characters who have not been presented with right. that level of style and and recontextualizing it. It's not it's not using tired music cues. It's not you know, it's it's finding a way to to do the to do Scorsese, but to it not like oh, this is the Scorsese moment. It's like ooh, just like Scorsese would. Yeah, that, yeah. That, there, that there's this. There's I always picture a lot of high fiving going on uh, behind the camera. Anytime he's like, okay, we got this. Do we nail it? All right, high five me. I know he's not a bro, but it seems like the type of thing. Uh, well, yeah, you know. he's get, well, he's getting pretty bro-y in these interviews. Oh, yeah. sure, yeah. Now, on Vice and uh, full disclosure, I've met Adam McKay on a couple of How's occasions. How's he doing? <laughs> um, well, he was... <laughs> He was very complimentary to me about Beat the Geek, so I'm glad he watched that's the show. Great. All right. That's, that's great. Um, that's points I in think, his favor. I think Vice, you know, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't dislike the film, but I don't particularly like it. Um, I think, you know, the, what I, going to what you said, um, one of my close movie-going friends uh, said something about uh, bamboozled, which I think kind of also applies to Vice, which is that the anger and the message became so overwhelming that it loses track of the comedy. That is, I, that, I agree that it with just that kind as well. of goes that it you know it goes off the off the rails because you know it's you know if you. Because Vice is supposed to be a movie created so that, you know, we have to laugh at this because if we if we didn't, we we'd be pulling our hair out and trying to break things. But by the end of the movie, it's breaking things. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it can't that it it can't sustain it, it, it. It doesn't have it doesn't go for. You know, the full joke, you know, that it, it still wants to remind you that that the stuff is horrible when you already kind of know it. And, you know, I you know, we I, I talked to him about, you know, the final Fast and Furious gag. And, you know, he he did not intend it to be, you know, such a lowest common denominator cheap shot because it was more about just the desire to escape when something becomes unpleasant, but the way it's executed, it feels like a cheap shot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, the, the thing that I said at the time was that even if he, like, even if you keep the script a hundred percent the same, which I don't think you should have, but even if you do that, like just go silly with it. Like don't cast Christian Bale cast, Danny DeVito, like just go full goofy with it and keep the script the same and let it be like that in itself plays into the cartoon. Have Will Ferrell play uh, George W. Bush, like just do that and the 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 fury will come out. But you're still playing up the cartoonish element of this whole thing. I mean, it's like Dr. Strangelove, like those characters are all cartoons. They're delightful, but they're cartoons. Well, 
they're cartoons, but they are still delivered with a straight face. Sure. I mean, like, I mean, Doctor Strangelove himself is, you know, oh, you know uh, an over-the-top presentation. Uh, King Kong is, is, is over-the-top, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, Merkin, Merkin Muffley, the president, is very dry, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, Jack D. Ripper is you know dry. You know that there's that there that there's you know there's some to- there's some tonal differences between how the characters are pitched. So I think that is what Vice is trying to go for right. in its comedy and hoping that just the absurdity and some of the other tricks of you know the fourth wall breaking and the the unusual narrator mm-hmm. are gonna are going to carry it along. Well, to get us back into the episode, yes, sir. you mentioned yeah. Peter Sellers, who Indeed. was on my list mm-hmm. uh, for, for being there um, uh, as an actor known for comedy who, who, who did drama. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, being there uh, fell into a certain category of that comes up with these things when researching this topic that there are certain sometimes there's an actor known for comedy who then moves into drama but the drama is like almost like a comment on their comedy persona you know I'd, like I'd say Adam Sandler Adam Punch Sandler is Love. exactly what I, yeah. I was thinking of Punch Drunk Love especially yeah. he's it's it's not a comedy, but he's so close to Happy Gilmore. It's so yeah. close to being the same character from Happy Gilmore, just like looked at from a different yeah. angle. It's like yeah, the the random emo- emotional out- outbursts and, and violence. If you just look at it from a slightly different angle, yeah, like, oh, this is deeply disturbing yeah, right. and not yeah, a delightful look. Comedy career, on yeah. His- Incidentally, I cannot wait to see Uncut Gems. Like, oh, and he looks great. Oh, in it. I am so pumped on that because yeah, yeah. uh, uh, I'm so upset that I missed a uh, good time because mm. I saw the Safties. Uh, heaven knows what, and that blew me away. Mm. And I was like, you know, this you know movie came out of nowhere, and and I was instantly okay i gotta see more of these guys and just the just the trailer for uncut gems like that is not a punch drunk love situation where it's like this is more of a a realistic kind of thing and his character is not overtly comedic but he brings a comedic energy to the character that just just from the trailer i'm like this is uncomfortable. This is making me very uncomfortable. Um, and which good time was a very, uh, which is a great and deeply unpleasant experience. And I'm really excited for, I'm excited for Adam Sandler. Like I really Mm -hmm. feel like this movie could get people looking at him in a different way because unlike to bring up another example of this, unlike somebody like a Steve Carell in Foxcatcher, where you can see the strings at all times, uh, in my opinion, um, I think Adam Sandler, again, this is just based on the trailer, but like Adam Sandler, he just seems to get that character and just inhabit it and doesn't seem to be trying like like he's probably trying very hard, but you don't see that effort. You just see the existence of that character. Uh, And I feel like any time, not any time, often when you have one of these comedic actors do something dramatic. I feel like to use a, the term that I think I've used it already, but like an old uh, an old acting teacher that I had said like you can see the strings you can see them making a choice to be dramatic damn it i will fulfill my usual role in the podcast as the guy who defends foxcatcher okay uh because i actually think that that (laughs) that role does kind of fit into what i'm talking about that there's that the character and i forget his name already uh dupont whatever dupont John, john dupont john dupont um is not that different from michael scott he's 
He's he's uh, got delusions of grandeur. He's got a complete mm-hmm. lack of self awareness. He's got an insecurity that is eating at him that that uh, uh, drives him to be sort of like performatively grandiose sure. or whatever. And so I think Foxcatcher is a much funnier movie. Uh, I think the, the uh, horses are stupid. The scene when he's running uh, the wrestling practice, or whatever, and his mom comes in. Um, do you remember the scene in Foxcatcher? I remember he, uh, he doesn't stop like running the practice, but now he's constantly has an eye on his mom and is like trying to show. Yes, off. I think that seems hilarious. Moments, well, and that's the thing is like moments like that where he gets to like the core of the character. I think he understands how to play the character. I think it's all the external stuff that feels and not behavior, not behaviorally, but the prosthesis, the way he carries himself, it just feels very false. I almost feel like if he had just openly played it a bit more like a more muted Michael Scott, but at that, with that same level of desperation, I feel like it would have been more effective, but as it is, especially compared to like, a, a beautiful and amazing performance by Mark Ruffalo, which seems tremendously naturalistic, even though it's a very different type of role for him, a very physical role. Um, I feel like compared to that, it just looks not merely performative because John DuPont was that, but also it just feels like the actor is constantly trying to prove himself to me, even though I don't think he has to. I think he does have the core down. I think you're right. But it just, again, it just feels, it bums me out because I feel like that could have been uh, truly amazing. And I feel like it's merely good. Let's well, t- okay. I, uh, I, well, I, I would like to interject that okay. uh, it's particularly interesting that, you know, I don't know when this will be posted, but our taping day today happens to be World Mental Health Day. Oh. And <laughs> in, in accordance with that, a documentary partly financed by Funny or Die came out called uh, Laughing Matters, which is about comedians talking about dealing with depression hmm. and serious matters and i think this is probably some of the motivation that comes into play when a comic actor takes uh, on a serious role that, that you know t- sometimes it's just a stretch sometimes it's just to, you know to break the monotony of having done the same thing again but oftentimes i can it's easy to see that you know, certain comedians, especially very troubled ones, you know, in their personal lives, will do what a serious role because you know it, it might help. You know, it, it, they they can bring the life experience to it and really inhabit it well. That you know, somebody like Peter Sellers who had image issues all his life. Uh, I mean, you know, don't go judge by that that hatchet job movie with uh, you know Jeffrey great Rush. Jeffrey Rush. Oh, Which is a shame because he was doing a good job. He, he's doing a great job of 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 inhabiting sellers, but it's such a you know, it's so bent on making sellers an utter bastard, it's like, well then why did any of these people stay in his lives? And yeah. so they don't get across the fact you know they, you know, it's like okay, he 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 could he could turn on jokes when the camera was going, but you, know, but it didn't get across the fact that he had he was capable of not being a bastard. You know yeah. that there were people who were you know that this is why Blake Edwards would mend fences with him. You know that that somehow that so, but he was someone who had you know demons all his life and had was trying to deal with them at various times through one means or another and 
he's done he had done other dramatic performances besides being there. He did an early 60s uh, gangster drama called Never Let Go, where he plays a crime boss. And he in the early 70s, he did a World War Two drama called The Block House. So he had dabbled in serious roles before or even when he was doing something ostensibly comic, you know, there'd be some some darkness to it. <clears throat> but I that I he would be able to tap into that. And I think that's why oftentimes uh, comedians can do well in serious roles like uh, we talked about Michael Keaton uh, doing Batman. And I don't know. I, I don't think it happened at the time of Batman, but uh, Michael Keaton's first wife, whom he was already divorced from, ultimately you know died of cancer. It was like a you know a very kind of painful, drawn out thing, and he's talked about it. and And I don't know if she was already in you know some stage of the disease when he when he did Batman, but you know he's. I would not be surprised if he, you know, he mentioned, well, yeah, I felt some guilt over, you know, breaking up with this woman and then her, you know, getting sick and, you know, me being supportive, but think, but also thinking of, you know, I went on to another more positive life and because she was an actress, she was uh, on Benson, uh, Caroline oh, okay. Williams. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously she had to leave her career behind. So that reminds me actually in a it's a little bit different but um when we were we did a some commentaries recently including one for the omen and just we were, for our listeners uh, mm-hmm. just for, yeah 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 i mean for people uh, for, who uh, want to pay to Support the show. Of course, uh, yes. Is this where you want to go into uh, the Patreon spiel? Because uh, I can <laughs> st- take a step back. Yeah, that's well. Yeah, Patreon will get you the commentaries of Indeed. the. Uh, they're available now. We did the Rosener's Baby, The Exorcist, The Omen, and The Conjuring. Yes, uh, but as we were speculating about why would Gregory Peck be in The Omen? In this, by the time the 70s rolled around, he was more interested in genre stuff. But I was looking it up, and apparently. Uh, he he took the part because I think his son had died and he felt like a father. He felt like he had not paid attention enough to his son. Um, and so this thing comes along in which you have this father whose son is this whole other thing and he's trying to do right. It's weird because the story is so inherently pulpy, but Gregory Peck saw something in the role of like this father who maybe because of job stuff has been negligent of his family or just assumed everything was going to go his way. And so he took that role for like some kind of cathartic thing. It's like, that is fascinating. And boy, would I have not assumed that from the omen. Uh, But yeah, you never quite know why an actor especially will like be like that 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 is the part i want well it's hard for me to not watch the first taken and be able to forget about the fact that this was one of the first uh jobs that liam neeson took after natasha richardson had died right and 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 it was clearly like you know thinking okay i've got to get out of my head if i just go work i you know i won't have time to you know to think about my sorrow and i think 
that one of the reasons why that first taken is still so effective, despite, you know, you know, looking at hindsight of how ludicrous it is, is that palpable sense of anger and grief and the desire to you know, make things right. right. To do something, to yes. like be active in saving your family. Whereas as opposed to like that impotent thing of just standing by and watching as something terrible is happening. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, uh, again, to get back to the topic, okay. uh, <laughs> uh, a thing that came up when I was doing my research is that there are certain actors that I knew as dramatic actors first. Hmm. Like you mentioned Emma Thompson earlier. Like I was, I wasn't seeing her on stage with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie back in the uh, whatever. I'm thinking Emma Thompson from the Remains of the Day. She's a right. comedian. Comedian. Um, another one is Eric Bana, who apparently had a oh uh, sure a, a big comedy career in Australia, yeah. but then but Chopper Chopper is funny. Is very then, funny. Uh-huh. Chopper is what we knew him. Yeah, like I'm saying, mainstream America. Oh, that's him. true. Uh, but the one that's very funny to me is that there's Art Carney is someone that I know is a comedian. Oh, yeah. I know that he was a radio comedian and all this. But when I think of Art Carney, I think of Harry and Tonka because <laughs> yeah. that's the first thing I ever yeah. saw him in. And so I, which uh, speaks, I came to it backwards. Which speaks to actually a, a common theme in a lot of these that I'm looking at is if you're a, a comedic actor and you want to do some drama – you'll at least get an Oscar nomination. You might not win, but Art Carney won, as did a number of these other actors. Uh, and then, like, Steve Carell was nominated. Like, it's... Jonah Hill's been nominated Jonah twice. Jonah Hill's been nominated twice. Um, but I'll say this, like, Wolf of Wall Street is a little bit closer because that's a, an over-the-top character, mm-hmm. as opposed to Moneyball, which is a very muted mm-hmm. type of character for yeah. him. Um, and so... And that's that's not to speak ill of the Academy, um, but to me, like when a dramatic actor plays a comedic role, like when the Academy recognizes that, I'm always happier. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that not that Johnny Depp was doing a lot of like comedic stuff before Pirates, but the fact that he's nominated for Pirates is to me like such a. Such a wonderful testament to what well, the Academy can do. <laughs> well, I, uh, granted, he but, lost to yeah, Sean well, Penn for Mystic River, but well, still. Uh, d- well, I mean, and that's it's, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to contemplate funny. because uh, Depp has burned so much goodwill sure. over the years. Yeah. But what people forget is that uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, everybody thought that movie was doomed, mm-hmm. number yeah. one, because Disney had already been trying to make uh, movies out of yeah. their theme park rides. And, Country Bears. Uh, Country Bears. Country Bears Mansion. is not bad, by and the way. Plus, when... You know, Depp was not in a, the greatest career shape when he did Pirates. I mean, he was doing fine, but, you know, he wasn't like a... It wasn't a huge draw. You know? yeah. And when he did Pirates, he he did a total antithesis of what Disney was expecting him to do. Mm-hmm. You know, that he was doing this totally like, his, you know, you were not expecting that kind of yeah. character when you go to, yeah. when you go to see Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, you're expecting, you know, something very energetic. You're not expecting this very kind of. You know, swishy, bur- yeah. swishy, burned out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was such a a gonzo kind of performance in and of itself, let alone in a mass entertainment movie. Yeah. That when he got nominated for it, it was 
it was a val it was a validation of the fact that something can come through the cracks that you know isn't prestige yeah and you know it's not necessarily comedy but it is just so unlike anything else that is going on that you have to recognize it that performance by itself almost pushes that franchise from just fun swashbuckling adventure almost single-handedly into comedy mm-hmm. um but that same year to get back to the topic david um that same year bill murray was nominated for lost in translation now mm-hmm. he'd done drama before he did the razor's edge yes in the 80s uh and even stuff like groundhog day is a comedy but there's some mad dog and glory mad dog and glory so he had done stuff before um but it's but i do think that like some of his work with Jim Jarmusch, and then obviously Wes Anderson, Rushmore uh, mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then Sofia Coppola, I think he, people still think of him, uh, understandably so, as a comedic actor first and foremost, but like he really transitioned into this thing. But I do know a lot of people that were, that could, that I don't agree, but they make the same argument about him in Lost in Translation that David, you mentioned about Daryl Hammond in Damages, that like he just strips so much of the type of charisma you know from him, strips so, so much of that away that people are like, he's just sitting there with a dour look on his face. But it's I motivated. think he's doing more. I, yeah. It, that's the difference is it's motivated. That's, yeah. The character is like that for a reason. Yeah. It's, it is, I think, a marvelous performance. And then he, a couple years after that, he did uh, Broken Flowers, and mm-hmm. it's a similar type of performance, which I, which I also love. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, he's somebody who I think has managed to... and But then he can pivot and just do wacky comedy mm-hmm. again. Like, he's one of the few, he and, like, I think Robin Williams, that was able to go back and forth pretty easily, as opposed to, like, you're a dramatic actor now, and that's what that's all we're going to see. All we're, mm-hmm. we're going to see you as. Well, Williams went in waves. You know that you had that when he came on the scene, you started having the the movies where I I, I know at least on one occasion the scriptwriter wrote. Robin does something funny here. Yeah. You know, the day they thought you know, he, his improv skills were going to save uh, a half-baked script. So you had the wacky Robin. And then he does, then I, like, I mean, Garp is a serious role, but, you know, it's not, but, so I'm trying to think what would be like the first really super dour serious and then you had the serious robin movies you know the- i feel like awakenings might be because he's not an over-the-top kind of guy there's humor to his mm-hmm. performance but it feels like a smaller yeah. thing um so, but then you had like you the the very serious robin movies and then you had the creepy robin movies yes and which he was very good at well but well, you know, the, well, the, the whole in, thing is that they beca- they became a that it, that it was like oh another creepy robin movie that sure. it, it, like like oh another patch adams style earnest you know, robin movie yeah. that it, that it would there would always be like three or four of them in a row that it would rarely get broken up and then when he would do a full on comedy again it it, it, it rarely you worked like you know, RV. I I didn't subject myself to the fullness of <laughs> RV. I just saw you know the same clips that were on the critics shows, and it was just like, oh man, I, I know he is trying to sell like a champ because that's what he knows they want from him. But you can tell he's just not in it. 
Do you think, uh, first off, I know the one hour photo is not a perfect film, but I think he's actually quite good in it. Um, eh, keep it. <laughs> and I f- seem to recall you and I both enjoyed death to smoochie more than some people. Yeah. Uh, but that's not, that's still over the top. It's yeah. over the top, mm-hmm. but like slightly dark, but it's not like these other films that we're talking about. Um, so along those lines, uh, and I realize we've been talking exclusively about male actors. I will. There are yeah. several female that I'll talk so about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but along those lines, it does feel like as as time went on, it does feel like Robin Williams was never able to go a hundred percent back to just the chaotic, uh, even whether it be Aladdin or Dead Poet Society or Good Morning Vietnam. It felt like he was never able to go completely back to that. Similarly, I also feel like Jim Carrey was never able to go all the way back to The Mask or Ace Ventura or even Dumb and Dumber, despite the fact that they made a sequel to it, which I which I didn't see. But it felt like after Truman Show and then Man on the Moon and then Eternal Sunshine, it felt like his career genuinely transitioned into something very different. I know he did like Mr. Popper's penguins or whatever, uh, which, uh, I didn't see, but I feel like he's never been what he was. Well, I don't I, say that in a negative or, or a positive I'll, way. It's you just, know what you, you, I think what, what may be a helpful thing. You know, like, I, I don't know if there are any comedy actors listening to this. I, but I we would try to drive them away if we can <laughs> <laughs> be more serious. Uh, when, in the incredible Burt Wonderstone, Carrie is outstanding. I do. I never he saw it, and I wanted to. He is bloody hilarious in that. And I think the key is that he doesn't have to carry the movie. Yeah, I think maybe he's he's maybe good in Kick Ass too, which is not a good movie, but he's great in it. That 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 perhaps what might have been the problem with him or Robin Williams is that. In trying to go back to comedy or to do another comedy again, that it might be harder to carry the full load of the comedy uh, simply because you know I've I've been to the mountaintop. You know that I you know, that right. it, it, it's harder to do that because you 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 kind of know how it's done. Maybe you get tired of your own bullshit and. Whereas if you if you get to do a a supporting part where you get to take a breather and someone else gets to step in for a while, then you you don't feel as pressured. Because if anything, some of the funniest latter Robin material is when he's not the star, like when he's cameoing in uh shakes the clown he, he he's a riot you know when he's when he's briefly appearing in baron munchausen you know when he just right. you know, when he just get ha- he can do a thing and then leave or you know then i think that i think maybe that is the secret for uh, um certain comedy actors to maintain their you know their laugh quotient when they've been working serious for a while. Even it's something the opposite of that. Oh, go ahead. Unless I'm missing something, but uh, like, is there? 
Has Steve Martin ever been a dramatic lead in a movie? He shows up. There's like Spanish prisoner and Joe Gould's secret shop girl. Maybe I never a, saw a little, but he's not like, Claire Danes is the lead and he's one of two more supporting performances, but that's more of a dramatic. I, I've never seen it, but I would almost say leap of faith is, you know, oh. dramatic enough in, enough. Maybe. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, but yeah, it's uh, that's a good. Po- uh, you know what? I guess he's. I guess this is an ensemble. Grand Canyon, the movie mm-hmm. Grand oh, Canyon. Oh yeah, uh, that is almost an exclusively dramatic role, right? Yeah, I mean he's he's a he's comical in certain moments right. in you know, the and you know the fact that you know he starts off as this you know comical character. He has this serious epiphany and he tries to change and then at the end of the movie he's reneged on that and gone back to his old ways. Yeah. But you know it's you know it's never you know it's never a played for laughs, but yeah. it, it it is you know uh, not, but it is a light kind of. Yeah, role. he plays a character that is witty and funny, but that doesn't mean he's playing him that way. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's a great movie. I haven't seen that in a long time. Oh, uh, I want to get us into talking because we want to talk about actresses. Yeah, and I'm yeah. going to use an actress uh, uh, as an example of something that I. Do you guys differentiate between people like like a Will Ferrell or a Seth Rogen who is a comedian, like a com, uh, you know. Uh, a comic actor who goes who who goes uh goes serious or sometimes i feel like sometimes there are just actors who happen to find their first role in success in comedies hmm. and then you know and so i'm thinking like a like a jennifer anderson or a sandra bullock like someone we think of as oh sure who then goes on to whereas something someone like a sarah silverman that's a comedian so when right. she does i smile yes. back or yeah. or take this waltz yeah. uh, or i take this waltz or a Whoopi goldberg um, who yeah. was a stand-up comedian who done, uh, you know, comedy and then does the color purple, mm-hmm. uh, which is just pure drama. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's, I, I, my, I think comedian. I'm inclined to differentiate. Yeah. I think like uh, the one, another person getting back into men, but like Tom Hanks is someone who like, mm-hmm. no one thinks of him as a comedian, but he like all his early role, you know, yeah. the bachelor party and, yeah. Yeah. and, and punchline certainly didn't help that What's image that? and punchline certainly didn't help that image of oh, seeing yeah. him as a comedian. Well, I, I mean, I was in, when I was in college, I got to see like, you know, a, I, I, you know, they didn't do many focus group shows in Columbus, Ohio, but they did that. But they did test punchline, you know, where we filled out the comment cards, and I think I wrote, "We'll give him an Oscar now, please," you know, and because I thought, I mean, I was in college, I thought, but he blew me away that much then. Hmm. Now, uh, you know, today I know it's a little mannered, but you know, it, it, it demonstrated that he had the chops, and of course, you know, he got the big prize later, and you know. You know, it's 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 hard for him to screw up. Uh, and I have to say, not I don't like the movie itself. I don't think it works. But Tom Hanks in The Lady Killers is hysterical. I agree. A hundred percent. It deserves it, it, you know, it. Irma P. Hall is very good as well. But he's clearly having I don't know if I've ever seen he, an actor he have that much He has not done fun. a movie that goofy or, or played a character that goofy in That's so true. long. And you can tell he, he he's just loving every inch of it. I was thinking of a, <laughs> of a line, Coen Brothers, a line where he 
says, uh, uh, you will discover that I'm a gentleman who is quiet and yet not, not quiet. quiet. If I may offer a riddle, and he just <laughs> and he says it with that big shit eating grin on his face. It is a that is that's a movie. It's it's rare, but that's a movie that I would recommend solely, maybe maybe only. On his performance. Yeah. Well, that movie also stars Marlon Wayans, who played a heroin addict in yeah, For a Dream. He sure did. Um, and then, like, it's, never went serious again, I guess? No. It really it bummed me out. I thought he like, was really good in that. I mean, I was I was young. I didn't have as good a taste. Reckon For a Dream, to me, does not hold up. But, yeah, I think he's, he's good. I think, the, I think all the actors are It's weird are that he great. never went back to... Yeah, to, maybe he just did Maybe he discovered he did not enjoy this. I could also see Darren Aronofsky being a bit intense for him. Yeah, maybe he didn't like hanging around Jared Leto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? There's a lot of layers to that not being a fun experience. Yeah. Um, so, uh, All right, so we we touched on uh, women briefly, and I feel like we. I have, yeah, well, I have, well, I have yeah, a, well, a few yeah, more. We, yeah, we should throw in. Um, I like think Melissa start, McCarthy Melissa is the McCarthy. big one oh, right yeah. now. Um, I yeah. I love her as a, I've said on the show before that she is somebody that I think she's one of the best comedic performers working today. Uh, she's always intensely watchable, even in I saw what was it? Uh, was it Life of the Party? Is that the the, yeah, the mom on campus movie. one? Yeah, yeah. I, the movie sucks, but she <laughs> is really great in it. Like she's just always very committed, and that type of commitment is the kind of thing that makes her transition into can you ever forgive me which again she's playing a funny blunt type character but at the core is a real loneliness and i think she does great Mm -hmm. i I really love her in that yeah um cloris leachman oh uh, sure yeah oh uh, man i i remember i'm i i can't recall if it was because of uh Mary Tyler Moore or, or what, mm. but this one I remember that when I, when I was really young, I was always kind of sad whenever there'd be some movie of the week and Cloris Leachman would be playing some awful character because it's just like, no, I like her. I don't want to see her being mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so I did. Oh, um, and then uh, speaking of Oscar winning performances, and I don't think she's ever, I don't think she stayed here, but, uh, Monique mm-hmm. in um, Precious. Precious, based, based on the, the novel, novel Push by Satire. Satire? Sapphire. Um, so uh, well, she's. I no, I, I said satire instead of sapphire oh. by accident. Um, she's, really, she's really great in that. And that, I know nothing about Monique, I don't know anything about her real life. But when you mention the idea of, of an actor playing a role and pl- and just embodying it so much as some kind of catharsis like again i i could see she plays that role so specifically that i'm like i'll I, she's got to be basing it on someone she knows i'm not saying her mom mm-hmm. but in the same way that like it and it ha- i feel like that's something that happens a lot with like comic actors is they remember someone that they went to high school with or something like that's that's this guy. I'm obviously, this is the character I'm playing. And that's, again, it just, it, that character is so on paper, so over the top, but she brings a specificity to it that I, I actually, I believe that character. Well, I think some of this, uh, can be attributed to the fact that, you know, arguably since the sixties, we have gotten a significant chunk of our comedy performers from some iteration of the second city. 
Okay, yeah. And the second city has, you know, from, you know, the book on improvisation by Viola Spolin and her son Paul Sills, you know, conducting mm-hmm. the first workshops, that they have always been about, you know, the, you know, you know, don't you know, don't go for the gag, go for the reality and you know, find the gag in it. Yeah. You know, so that you so you're having you know, all of the all of these actors who, you know, dramatic and comedic alike who came out of Second City and, you know, directors. I mean, you know, we well, we neglected the big one, uh, you know, Mike Nichols. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. And Elaine May. Yeah. You know, that that. So so for for one crop of comedy actor as opposed to stand up comic, you know, the, uh, the comedy actor who has come out of Second City or some you know, variation, you know, they already they've already thought about, OK, you know, inhabit the, the reality. What would what would this person do or how would this person react to such an over the top person? You know, why is this person behaving in this manner? What is their what is their venal goal? Mm-hmm. And the and these are the things that matter in a performance. I think uh, stand up stand up comics who go into acting because I did stand up for ten years and did improv for a good chunk of that as well. And uh, stand ups are you know less about creating character, but more just about you know you know cutting you know. Selling a certain truth that even mm-hmm. if they're ma- making up a bullshit life experience for a joke, they've got to go on stage and make you believe that for you know for thirty seconds, it's totally plausible that you know I was in, I was in a coffin with my dead grandmother. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I went to that. More than I, mean, I assumed that was something from your act. No, that no that no that's not my act was much more you know. You know, pedestrian than that. <laughs> I so I do have um, a few that I just wanted to touch on. Yeah, we should wrap up soon. We've gone um, an hour and a half, so we should okay. wrap up. Uh, uh, but yeah, I also have a couple that I wanted to mention. So first, I wanted this is just kind of a one-off, but there was a movie. Um, I think it had a few titles. It was in the '90s uh, called Drunks. Um, oh yeah, it's an ensemble. Yeah, it's with Faye uh, Dunaway's in it and, and uh, Spalding Parker Gray, Posey. Parker Posey, and it's essentially it's a, an AA meeting, and so that really gives you an opportunity to have mm-hmm. all these actors deliver really good monologues. Oh yeah, uh, and Richard Lewis uh, play is the lead, and it's a it's great. It's a really strong like when I think of like really great like alcoholic performances, that's up there, and there's a, a moment where he after a night of debauchery comes back to a meeting and he just looks so haggard and i think it's a really great performance and he's never really done anything like that before uh since uh so obviously knowing what you know about richard lewis like that's a personal mm-hmm. thing for him he's osu clearly, grad <laughs> so, hey all right well uh, go bucks call, call him up um <laughs> so uh yeah so that's one where like he did that and then went sort of went back. Um, and then I also wanted to mention before I get to like maybe the biggest example of this, I also briefly want to mention John Candy who was in, who, I, I mean, he, he could play sincere mm-hmm. very well. Like planes, trains and automobiles is funny, oh but that's a heartbreaking God, how performance. How good is he in that? Uh, and then also the movie cool runnings is not good. 
but he's very good in it. And mm-hmm. I love, and of course he's playing what you're talking about, uh, with Steve Martin and grand Canyon. He's playing a funny guy in JFK mm-hmm. where uh, he's a guy who just like cracks wise and that sort of thing. But it's very clear that he's doing that to compensate for an extreme paranoia and just a general I, shiftiness. I, by the way, have nothing but positive memories of cool runnings. I hadn't oh. seen it since I was a little kid. Uh, <laughs> oh, let, let's throw, let's throw in for only the lonely as well, which I never saw. Uh, I never saw that either. Yeah, but that, uh, yeah, it's, on so many levels, uh, I was thinking actually about uh, doing an episode sometime in the near future where we talk about like actors and directors that passed away, like in my sort of a in my lifetime, um, and just the ones that I miss the most. Mm-hmm. And John Candy is way way up there, not merely because he was just such a reliable performer, no matter what he was doing, but you also see it's like. Okay, planes, trains, and automobiles. Only the lonely. Uh, cool runnings and JFK is like okay. He was in. He was on his way to maybe not fully transitioning into this other thing, but definitely entertaining some different ideas yeah. of what his career could be. And then it got cut short, and that is to me uh, very tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, drunks. Let's talk about Parker Posey. Sure. I, I mean, you know, here's a girl, a woman who you know. <laughs> You know, came in guns a blazing with uh, dazed and confused and party girl, and mm-hmm. you know, and she could you know, just t- you know, adjust and do something like drunks. And I don't like the movie, but in suburbia, she's very good mm-hmm. with the material she's given to work with in there. And she was in Columbus a couple day, a couple uh, years ago, um, right? Yeah, in a supporting role that I think is great. Yeah, she, I yeah, like everyone really in that good. movie, but she—I thought she was wonderful. Um, but yeah, uh, she can, I think, still go back and forth. Yeah, uh, as can. As long as we're talking about uh, women, Kristen Wiig is a great yeah, actress who can be yeah. very dramatic and very and very funny. Uh, Lily Tomlin, I think, still uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Lily Tomlin, uh, Goldie Hawn, uh, uh, yeah. uh, Sham- mm-hmm. Shampoo, uh, uh, Criss Cross, you know, the, the Cactus Flower. I never saw it. Yeah. I don't. I don't no, know if it's I, comedic or not. No, uh, I know that's okay. the one she got the Oscar for. So yeah, that's all I'm I mean, but about. that yeah, that was pretty. I've never seen Cactus Flower either, so okay. I can't, can't fully vouch. But um, And then a couple of guys that I feel like haven't that have done the thing Tyler was talking about, they went serious and kind of stayed that way for the large part, uh, Greg Kinnear. Sure. And John Leguizamo. Like, when was the last time John Leguizamo was I mean, funny? He, 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 because he continued doing stand-up, I think that's where he found his, like, comedic okay. outlet. But, yeah, he, you know, and whether it be John Wick or Romeo plus Juliet or whatever it is, like, I Empire. think he... Remember that movie? Uh, Peter Sarsgaard, right? Uh, was he in that? I never I think saw he's it. the villain in that, but okay. now I don't recall. But, uh, but, yeah, no, that's, I think that's a good example as well. But to me, I do think maybe the the biggest one of, of, of these is... Will Smith. I think Will Smith, like granted he came out of music, but then, but then I think he, but then he did the sitcom and stayed in that for a long time doing the occasional, like six degrees of separation, whatever it is. But then he does like Ollie pursuit of happiness, seven pounds, like, uh, not collateral concussion, uh, just like not merely like serious movies, but in some cases, in, inten- well, <laughs> intensely serious movies. I think I, there are things I really like about Ali, um, and I think he's 
great in pursuit of happiness. Like, yeah, and, yeah. um, not, the film I think is movie. fine. Yeah. Um, but I think he's somebody who, and he can still do the charming thing and go back to, to what he was doing. But like he, I think he's a huge movie star who got yeah. big doing, action but being funny doing action like with bad boys and then i think he was able to stay an independence day and i think he and men men in black and i think he was able to transition pretty fully into the dramatic you're leaving world. out his greatest dramatic role and i'm not kidding which is i am legend oh uh, no question and about i know it. that movie uh falls apart so thoroughly at the end that i still yeah. get mad when i think about it but, but that's not a function of his performance he, he's yeah, he's, he's consistent all the way through that i know people that actually really hate the shrek scene I love it. I think it Have works you seen so I well. Am Legend. I yeah. saw it when it came out. Yeah, I I, I really like it for about an hour. <laughs> for about sixty minutes, I think it's it's really important. Well, yeah. and oh, we, we we've, I mean, it's not the the most dramatic role, but there's definitely pathos to it. You know, we've we've left out Eddie Murphy in the Dolomite is my name, uh, uh, which I just saw it. last night. I and, didn't see it. Oh, it's some of the best work he's done really? in years I and I mean, it's very funny but there's that performance there is there are all these great moments where you know you can tell there's something else going on in his head that he's not sharing with anybody you know just a lot of private stuff and for me who I've you know, I've studied Rudy Ray Moore quite a bit. I just wrote something about Dolomite for the New Beverly's blog. And before that, I had briefly been doing uh, trivia bumpers at El Ray, and I had to come up with like a bunch of pop up video facts for Dolomite. And at that time, there wasn't that much available, but Rudy was still alive at the time. Uh, so I had to dig deep and find all of these interesting mm. aspects of uh, that movie's making. That, you know, Eddie's only done drama a couple times, you know, Dream Girls and uh, Mr. Church. Mr. And, Church. you know, they're, you know what, the effectiveness is up for debate. But I will say, though, even though everything about it is over the top his performance as sherman clump in nutty professor is a very sad and lonely mm-hmm. performance like he does not it's this is going to sound so strange but i think of it because of the heavy makeup his performance as Sherman Clump and the Nutty Professor reminds me of Boris Karloff as Frankenstein's monster. They're like, there's all this histrionic stuff going on around the characters and the characters themselves look kind of over the top in a way. But at the core, there's nothing. The film never really makes fun of him. Uh, And I think Eddie Murphy, like, really finds a humility in that Mm -hmm. character. I I love his performance. And it's interesting that you brought up uh, Karloff, because as I was prepping for the show, a lot of thoughts were going through my head. And I was thinking about, you know, what you know, what drives comedians to do dramatic parts. And some of it is, you know, getting getting tired of your own shtick and wanting to do something different and not being just that funny person and and I think you know it's I think almost everybody is going to very few people don't go through it at some point it would it would would be it would be amazing if someone didn't but that 
I think the general trajectory is, you know, you you get known for one thing, you get tired of doing it, you want to do something else. And then after you've done a whole bunch of stuff, you kind of like being known for that original thing, especially when it's endured and been proven over a long time. And people in it, in interviews, uh, people would ask Karloff, does he has he ever gotten tired of being recognized for Frankenstein? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, no, no, that monster made my life, you mm-hmm. know, that. You know, that it was it put him on the map and it's, you know, it, it's made an imprint and it still affects people. So you know, that, he, he, you know, he was content mm-hmm. to be known for for that one thing. And so it's 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 a you know, you get wonderful things when when comedians get out of their comfort zone. But it's almost I would say that. It's great when they're able to at least not completely renounce it, even if they can't fully go back to it. Yeah. Yeah. And which I think is is probably a good way to just end to mm-hmm. end the episode, because it's I wish I could say that I'm more open to the idea of when a when a comic actor tries to make that transition sometimes successfully sometimes not uh in the same way that anytime an actor directs a movie and like whatever their first movie is i'm like i i don't know if i trust this well that's uh, funny well, too, I said, uh, uh, well what, what what's the ending of sullivan's travels you know, sullivan wants to do a yeah. brother where art thou and after you know getting a d- big dose of tragedy yeah. he wants to make people laugh again yeah it's I think the issue is mine because when a comedic actor or, or director, uh, when they make this transition successfully, they seem almost better able to handle it than some of the people that are more dramatically oriented or dramatically trained or whatever. Um, and so, but for whatever reason, I still instinctively have that suspicion, and I shouldn't. Uh, no, I, I have the opposite. You know. I'm always excited when I hear about it. Yeah, it's. I think because the shitty part of it is that, like, I can see all the. Com- I, I feel like I can hear all the supposed conversations happening behind the scenes by like managers and agents and that okay. sort of thing. Like, oh, this is going to get you. You're your seeing Oscar. the strings. Uh, yeah, I guess so. the strings <laughs> of Hollywood. We now we're full circle again. Yes. Mark, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. We, I'm sure we could have gone another three hours. Uh, Absolutely. I didn't but, even touch on Billy Crystal. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. And why would so I? Many I, 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 I left off. Um, I almost, uh, anyway, that's not the point. The point <laughs> is that you can find us at Battleship Retention. You can find the Patreon there. Thank you for plugging the Patreon. Mark, yes, thank earlier. you. You can uh, uh, email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Over on the website this week, I, I reviewed, um, oh, what did I review? You uh, reviewed uh, uh, Mr. America. Mr. America. Mr. America. Right. Which um, looks so fun. It's it's good. Maybe I mean, not know, fun, fun, but it's, it's very it, yeah. incredibly dry, which yeah. is the very much the Tim Attic or Greg Turkington mm-hmm. style. But I really liked it. You can read my review over there. Uh, you can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any, anything to plug right uh, now. So more over at uh, More Than One Lesson, um, I, there, there's 
no new content as far as my podcast, but I have been since it's October, I've been reposting some of my favorite uh, Halloween episodes. So like there's an episode that we did about the witch, uh, about uh, the original Jacob's Ladder uh, and that sort of thing. So you can go to more than one lesson.com. Thank you for acknowledging the Jacob's Ladder. I know there's a new one. I was uh, scrolling through. (laughs) In quotes, it was finished three years ago. I was scrolling through Redbox the other day and I thought, oh, and then I kept moving. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so the original Jacob's Ladder. Um, but, yeah, so if you go to morethanonelesson.com, you can uh, you can check that out. And, Mark, anything to plug? Uh, well, uh, first off, uh, my... Uh, my my writing at uh, uh, thenewbev.com at, at the blog. Uh, uh, I just, uh, as I said, just posted an article about uh, the original Dolomite. Uh, I did a piece about how if you looked at the Bev calendar from summer of uh, 2016 b- beforehand, you would have seen how Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's story unfolded through various <laughs> calendar bookings. You know that it just you know connecting the dots that you didn't think that you know you know Mr. Film Critic, I gave you all the clues. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's also how dare you for referencing that terrible movie? Uh, if if Ernesto Gastaldi had written it and Dario Argento had directed it <laughs> as is, you would have been calling it a Jalo masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see it, so I can't say. Okay, but um, also I damn dour. But anyway, uh, my my actual blog, which is very infrequently updated, but it is projectorhasbeendrinking.blogspot.com. My top my top thirteen list goes there every year. If you need you know recommendations for your various uh, streaming services and DVD buys, uh, and I've got I've got some recent Blu-ray commentaries available to to pick up from I did. Uh, Born in East L.A. with uh, Cheech Marin and uh, Mac and Me with Stuart Rafel for Shout Factory. <laughs> and I did uh, uh, V.I. Warshawski with uh, director Jeff Canoe for Kino Lorber. And so, you know, pick those up. You know, make, is a, prove to them that you'll buy stuff that I'm attached to yeah, so that they'll hire me again. And also, I think, uh, watch all three of those movies in one night. It'll be a really interesting <laughs> uh, trifecta. Well, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 